You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. No more metal shit. It's all about hip hop. It's all gravy. It's all bling bling, pinky ring, word about fitty bling bling, all that shit. No more of this. It's about this. All right, you heard me? Lay your shit by the TV and watch this shit here. This shit the bomb. You heard me? Hollywood, I got one thing to say to you. Live the life. Live your best life, baby. It's all about the bling bling and the zing zing and the bing bing and the bing bing and the hing hing. That's all we need is an underwear model, hip hop dude doing a rock star movie. Like I remember when I first figured out who it was, I'm like, Marky Marks, the guy? Like, why him? Because he's a rock star, dude. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't know that. <laughs> so... We've gathered here on this fine evening to celebrate 20 years, because this movie came out in 2001, so 20 years of the movie Rockstar. 
you and I, we've never discussed it. We've done a couple of other uh, rock and roll movie slash documentary type episodes, but we've never really given our opinions or talked a whole lot about this movie. And this movie over the years has garnered a whole lot of shit from what I can tell. Yeah, it'll be an interesting talk. We don't talk movies a lot, like you said. This one's probably going to be a little part movie, part music. We're not going to go into the movie super deep. We're not damn good movie memories here. Brian Davis, great podcast. You should go check it out if you love movies. That ain't us, right? So we're going to jump around a little bit. We really want to talk about the music because there's a ton of music in this movie. But believe it or not, this is one of my favorite movies. I've probably seen it 30, 40 times, and it's probably just because of the music. Hey, man, haven't you ever heard about a teaser? You're not supposed to give away the fact that you like the movie up front. Don't you know anything? Sorry. It's a <laughs> teaser. Whatever. <laughs> it's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. Tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight sort of sounds like something out of the 80s. It comes from a band called the Norseman Company. I don't know anything about this band. They sent me a thing, and I figured, hey, the album cover's kind of cool. It's a Norwegian band, and what's not to love about Norwegian bands these days? So I'll check it out. The name of the new album is called The Coming of the Chord, and that's chord like guitar chord, C-H-O-R-D. So this apparently is a band that was put together by this guy named Gear Arndale, who was a drummer in a Norwegian classic rock band called Humbucker. Again, a band I don't know anything about. This guy figured, hey, I'm going to put together this project and bring in some cool people from different Norway bands like our friend from Ammunition and Wigwam, Age Sten Nielsen. And I was in. I said, all right, I'll check it out. So Here's a song called Here Comes Rock and Roll. Here comes rock and roll. Gonna twist your mind, gonna claim your soul. Here comes rock and roll. Are you ready? Here I am, I'm back again. Gonna plug it in, turn it up till ten. Let me hear you scream, let me hear you shout. Making no sound is what is out. 
So I don't know anything about this band either. I heard the song today. I like the song. There is something there. I wish the production was bigger. Like if it had that arena rock eclipse heat type of production, man, this thing would sound absolutely huge. Yeah, what I gather from this is that basically this is a low-budget deal. It's not on Frontier's record. It's not got that production, like you said. I don't think it sounds bad by any means, but it's not quite up to snuff. And the album was mixed and mastered in the U.S. by Bo Hill. So I'm just not really sure. And I haven't spent a ton of time with this record, but I have gone through it a few times and I think there's some really good material on it. So we'll see what happens, but it's sort of a project versus a band from what I understand and from what I read into this. So again, the band is called The Norseman Company. The name of the song is called Here Comes the Rock and Roll from the album The Coming of the Chord. Uh, you may enjoy that. After the nuclear holocaust, right? Survivors will crawl out the rubble in the dark, light a fire, and then one man, the singer of songs, will sing. And that is the essence of rock and roll. What are you talking about? Okay, so let's get to our episode. So, the movie Rockstar, released on September 7th, 2001, as Stephen said, 20th year anniversary. So here's kind of how the story goes. The New York Times runs a story on Tim Ripper Owens because he's about to join Judas Priest in 1997. A bunch of Hollywood studios ran to option the film rights. Warner Brothers won the bid and hired John Stockwell to write the script. Stockwell doesn't know a ton about rock, so he goes and starts doing research, visits Ripper's hometown of Akron, Ohio, because there's a big tribute band scene there. They decide to title the Project Metal God. And they get George Clooney involved because he's newly founded a place called Maysville's Pictures. He signs on Brad Pitt to be the star. Pitt is not happy with the creative differences with the studio, whatever the hell that means. Maybe they, he didn't want to wear a wig, who knows? So then they get Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, who co-starred with Clooney in Three Kings, so they know each other, for the main role. And then by the time 2001 rolls around, Warner Brothers is like, you know what? Metal God is probably a very finite uh, audience. Let's change the movie's names to Rockstar and attract a broader audience. You know, this whole thing about is the movie about Judas Priest. We'll get into that at the end of the movie. First thing is, how did you first see the movie? I first saw the movie in the movie theater with an old girlfriend of mine. Because this thing dropped four days before 9-11. That's one of the things that basically just ruined any chances this movie had mm -hmm. anyway. Did you see it shortly after 9-11? Like, was it a couple of weeks later? I have to be honest and assume that I didn't see it opening weekend, so I must have seen it after 9-11. But to be honest, I really can't remember exactly when. I know that I saw it pretty quick when it came out, so maybe I did see it that opening weekend before 9-11. I don't remember. For me, I had just started a new job, so I was all in on the new job I was doing and I was, you know, busy with other things. So I didn't really think about music or movies too much, probably. So the first time I saw this was one of those blockbuster video rentals. And then, of course, loved the movie and owned it ever since. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Let's talk a little bit about the cast. 
before we get to the full cast, there's three main characters, right? You got Mark Wahlberg before 2001. He's in Boogie Nights. He's in Three Kings. He's in The Perfect Storm. So his career, we'll say, is ascending, right? He's about to become a huge actor because right now the guy probably makes $25 million a movie, if not more. But uh, his acting career is really taking off. Jennifer Aniston, well, she's in the middle of a huge run with Friends, right? She's in the sixth year of Friends. She's been in a couple of movies, Picture Perfect, Office Space, Office Space. Oh, my God, I love that movie. I would say her movie career, her film career, her TV career, let's say is established, but probably still ascending. And then you got Timothy Oliphant, who before 2001, he was in Gone with 60 Seconds. And he's basically just getting started because he's getting like little cameo roles, little roles in some TV and some film, but he's not really anybody yet. And reality is you probably can't call him anybody now, right? Nobody really knows who he is now. So what do you think about these three guys? Because especially Mark and Jennifer, that's two pretty big names for a movie that didn't do that well. Well, back then, they were really the only two that I knew. I didn't know anything about Timothy Elephant then, at least not to my knowledge. I mean, obviously, Deadwood after the fact, but before, no. So Jennifer and Marky Mark were it pretty much. And those are big names, right? So if 9-11 doesn't happen, does this thing do better? Because that's two serious names. I think that this movie, on the surface, is limiting itself to a certain demographic. Now, the thing about it is, and we'll get into this as we discuss the movie, this movie really is not necessarily all about the rock and roll. It's sort of a love story, basically. Okay, backstage pass. Okay, crud pollution. Okay, Bobby Pierce. I mean, Chris Queers. So let's get to the rest of the cast. And really, there's I've kind of bucketed them into four different buckets. you got a tribute band who's called Blood Pollution. You've got a band called Steel Dragon. You've got kind of like the spouses. And then there's some others that are in the movie. We're not going to talk about each one of them, but really quick, uh, we'll go through a bunch of them. So Marky Mark initially is in Blood Pollution, the tribute band, but of course he goes to Steel Dragon. He's playing Chris Izzy Cole. And Miljenko Matijevic of Steel Heart is his singing voice, except for the last song on the track, which we'll talk about in a minute. Jennifer Aniston, she's the manager and she's uh, Marky Mark's girlfriend. Timothy Oliphant is the guitar player in Blood Pollution and he's a friend of Marky Mark's. Blas Elias from Slaughter, he's on drums. Nick Cantonese from Black Label Society, he's on guitar in Blood Pollution. And then uh, Brian Vanderark from The Verb Pipe, he's the bass player. Steel Dragon, which is the real band in this movie, is Jason Fleming. Uh, who's on lead vocals, and he's Bobby Beers, because we'll be probably talking both names, so I wanted to give the characters. His singing voice is basically Jeff Scott Soto the entire time. Timothy Spalls is Matt's. He's the road manager. Dominic West is Kirk Cuddy, who's on guitar, and he's probably the only non-musician based on the others. Jason Bonham is playing drums in Steel Dragon, and you know he's been in Foreigner, Black Country Communion, among others. Zach Wilde. So this is non-bearded Zach, technically. Uh, Black Label Society, of course, on lead guitar. And then Jeff Pilsen's playing bass. He's from Dockin' and Foreigner, of course. The spouses, the two names most likely everybody knows. Rachel Hunter is in the movie, and then Kerry Stevens is in the movie. And then some of the other actors that we have, Dagmara Dominicisk, who is Tanya Asher, which we're going to talk about her in a minute, or him, or I'm not exactly <laughs> sure exactly what to say there. Um Stefan Jenkins, who is uh, Bradley, and he is actually the singer for Third Eye Blind, and uh, he's kind of the nemesis. We got Miles Kennedy's in the movie for a little bit. He's from Slash and Alter Bridge, and we'll talk about where he ends up in the movie. And then Ralph Sains from Steel Panther is also in the movie for just a little bit. 
My question to you is obviously a lot of these guys are musicians. How do you feel about musicians playing actors in a real movie? Because I, I thought they did okay. Well, they played to their strengths. I mean, they honestly, they really used them as musicians. And I think that's a credit to the casting director. I mean, I think this movie doesn't work if you don't have real musicians involved. And let's face it, the people that were doing the actors were actually actors, right? The people that were doing the main parts, your Wahlberg, your Aniston, the guy that played Kurt Cuddy. Those guys are all actors. Timothy Oliphant, all those people are actors. Pilsen and Zach and Jason Bonham and all these folks that are musicians, they literally had really slim parts in terms of speaking parts. So they didn't really have to act a whole bunch. And most of the parts that they were acting were from a musician standpoint, basically. Yeah, the reason I like the musicians being used is one is I think it adds some credibility to the story. That's one. But I absolutely detest when there is some sort of movie about musicians and either the lead singer doesn't know how to hold a mic or the guitar player doesn't know how to hold a guitar like they can't even sell it it absolutely drives me crazy i'll say this hands down the live footage that they used in this movie was spot on in my opinion so it paid off to have musicians yeah!
So let's get to the actual movie and the music. Classic love story. There's no doubt there's all kinds of love story stuff peppered into this thing. And it's also a classic story of be careful what you wish for. That's kind of the themes throughout the whole movie. I love it when the movie starts with the end. So they're interviewing basically Marky Mark, and they kind of start the movie with the same interview, and then they end the movie with that interview ending, which I kind of like. They flash to a movie theater, mid-80s, Pittsburgh. The tribute band Blood Pollution is practicing in the basement of a porn theater. And you can immediately tell that the part that Marky Mark's playing, Chris Cole, is a perfectionist about the tribute band playing the stuff the right way. And when they go into the basement, the first song you hear is their attempt to do Long Live Rock and Roll by Blackmore and Dio. Your thought on how the movie started and... They weren't doing long live rock and roll that great, were they? <laughs> I didn't think it was that bad, actually. I thought his guitar sound was really, really good. I was sold from the beginning because they come into this movie with the camera moving through, you know, the basement and everything of this porn theater down to the rehearsal halls. And for me, it instantly transformed me back to that period of time when I was growing up where I was in rehearsal halls with friends, listening to bands do cover songs and things like that. And the first song out of the gate is, you know, that riff from Long Live Rock and Roll. It's just a rainbow classic. And uh, yeah, I mean, they're cutting it up and they're messing around and getting all screwy. And so you only get to hear bits and pieces of it. But right away, like I'm sort of sold, you know, so that was cool. So then they kind of fast forward to Chris's day job a little bit. He's a photocopier technician. Kind of see Chris's family, except for his brother, are pretty supportive of the tribute band. So you kind of get that idea right away. And uh, even his little brother's playing with a Steel Dragon album called Lubricator. <laughs> it's so 80s. That's just so 80s. The movie moves on to they're on the way to the show. The car breaks down. They're picking up the girlfriend on the way to the show. They're handing out flyers before the show. And this song actually plays at the end of credits too, living the life. So I'm sure that that kind of brought up some memories for you because it did for me. Like, you know, going and picking up the girlfriend and my car never really broke down out of that. But, you know, that kind of brings up some thoughts, doesn't it? Oh, that connected with me big time. Yeah. I mean, it literally mirrored, you know, my 80s and growing up and hanging out with friends that were in bands and doing all that kind of promotion and girlfriends and all that stuff. I connected with it instantaneously. And let me ask a question going back just a minute or two. Mark Wahlberg character being the copier repair man, isn't that really what Tim Ripper Owens was actually doing before he ended up in Judas Priest? I didn't know that. Somebody out there will correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me I remember reading that that was what he was doing before uh, he joined Judas Priest. So I thought that maybe that was one of those true little facts about the movie that was true, even though we'll talk about it later. This movie really is seriously loosely based on that whole thing. But I think that that is actually one of the facts, but I'm not sure. I won't sell the farm on it. So, we debated the accuracy of Stephen's comments. According to a 1998 MTV interview, Tim Ripper Owens sold office supplies and there was no mention of him being a copier repair man. Yeah, but that doesn't mean he wasn't. Stephen could be right. Yes. But if history tells us anything, Stephen is wrong 99.9% .9 of the time. I would say that statement is accurate. Let's go with Stephen is wrong. Cue Marissa. The defense is wrong! 
Uh, your thoughts on Living the Life? Great song, right? Written by Peter Beckett and Steve Plunkett from Autograph. God, I love that song. Probably my favorite out of all of them. I like a lot of this music and I like a lot of the Steel Dragon songs, but this song in particular, and I don't know if it's because of the actual scene uh, where they're cruising and passing out flowers and all that stuff. Uh, and they, they pull up next to the truck and they're, you know, giving the devil horns and rocking out. This is shit that all actually happened to me during my younger years. I mean, this is stuff that I identified with 100%. So I dig that tune a lot. That riff is awesome. So then we move on to the concert scene, which was a shot at Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena before 10,000 Metallica and Megadeth fans. Now, I'm not sure how Metallica and Megadeth fans felt about Marky Mark being in a wig on the stage. You think they were okay with that? I'm, I'm surprised they weren't throwing shit at them. <laughs> that and the fact that I don't know if this music actually identifies with Metallica and Megadeth fans, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then the first song you hear at the concert is Stand Up. And Chris is singing like crazy in the crowd. And then Bobby Beers notices that, right? So Chris is singing so loud that it's like Bobby's like, okay, what the hell is going on kind of thing. Man, I love that song. Sammy Hagar wrote a gem there, baby. Yeah, it's a definite arena anthem type song. It's a great tune. And again, if you were going to tap a rock and roll crowd for an 80s movie, wouldn't you tackle maybe somebody from the Sunset Strip, a Motley or a Rat? Metallica and Megadeth were the only two things they could come up with. Was the big four, maybe they were touring and they just took an opportunity? Maybe. I guess you take what you can get. You need a rock and roll crowd, so whoever's playing down there at the time you're shooting, I don't know. Got it. 
then we fast forward after the show to Black Babylon, who's the rival tribute band. And they're in the parking lot and they're flying cars and, you know, a stupid fight breaks out. I thought maybe they stole that from Anchorman, but then I found out that Anchorman came out three years later. So I think that's a stupid fight. Then you kind of see Chris in the church chorus with his girlfriend, Emily, which is interesting. He's kind of learning how to sing in the church. And then there's the nipple piercing scene, which I'll tell you, if Jennifer Aniston wants to pierce me, I think I will allow it. How about you? There's absolutely nothing that I don't like about that entire scene. I like, <laughs> I like the music that they came up with. I like the premise and what he's doing. He's so serious about his tribute band that the actual guy changed one thing about his appearance. So uh, Mark has to change to match, right? I don't know. It's perfect. Are You Ready by ACDC? Perfect, perfect, perfect song for that particular scene. And it was awesome. I really, really enjoyed that part. So now I have a bone to pick because I do believe it was a perfect song. I will start with that. But that song came out in 19-fucking-90. And that (laughs) is lazy, right? So when that happens in a movie that is supposedly supposed to be set in mid-80s, And there's tons of music from the mid-80s. Why in the hell can't you get the timeline right? I don't disagree, Chris Cole. (laughs) (laughs) Sonny Pooney is the Chris Cole of the podcast. Yeah, you're right. That is a bit lazy. To be honest, I never actually thought about that until you said it. 
but you're, you're a hundred percent spot on because they didn't really, as we go through a lot of the rest of this music, they didn't really do that for anything else. Right. They were pretty much on point with most everything else. Uh, uh it's hit and miss. We'll get to it. Okay. All right. So we've jumped to Chris and his guitarist, Rob, Timothy Oliphant have a history of not getting along. So they're doing a live gig. Their tribute band is, and Chris isn't happy with what Rob is playing because Rob's not playing it note for note. And Chris kind of jams his uh, microphone stands into the amplifier. And then a fight breaks out between the two of them on stage, which sounds like everybody's kind of used to. I loved it that Rob kind of threw his guitar at the tech before throwing down. It was almost like he knew that the fight was about to happen. That part was a little bit crazy. Has that kind of stuff happened to you on stage when you were a uh, road manager? Me personally, no. I've never been involved in anything like that where, you know, I've been involved with band members screaming at each other or or whatever, but nothing like a fight breaking out. Now, I saw Bobby Dahl threw his bass at Brett Michaels here in Atlanta and walked off the stage. I did see that. Didn't they come back, though? They actually did not come back with Bobby. I think Bobby actually walked off and they came back and played the encore without Bobby. I don't remember. But I know that there was a fight between Bobby Dahl and, and Brett Michaels here in Atlanta back in uh, 2006, 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. And I remember Bobby Dahl throwing his base at Michaels. So, wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, me personally, no, I've never been involved in anything like that. The other interesting thing I thought that was cool is Nick Cantonese is basically playing the Zach Wild role in the tribute band and he's kind of a Zach mini me anyway and they're both in black label society I just thought that was cool I guess unless you're a music nerd you don't really know that but I think that's kind of cool so the next day Chris is going to practice and he walks in and his nemesis Bradley is at the mic because Rob the guitar player has decided well Chris is too much of a perfectionist so he's out and he kind of gives Chris the riot act about not uh, writing his own songs the song that they were practicing was Wasted Generation. Now, Bradley did not sound great. We are young. Like, it was really bad. But uh, your thoughts on the real Wasted Generation song, because they didn't exactly do it justice. <laughs> I'm not going to have a whole lot bad to say about any of these Steel Dragon songs. I like that song, too.
and it's a Desmond Child pen tune, and it sounds like it, so that's cool. So while this is all happening in the blood pollution camp, in the Steel Dragon camp, they're having a problem because Bobby Beers, who's the real lead singer in this band, is not showing up to practice, and he's kind of being a pain in the ass. So they're looking at replacing their singer, and there's a bunch of stuff that happens that kind of causes this piece. But Chris receives an unexpected phone call from Kirk Cuddy from Steel Dragon, and he's trying to offer him an audition. And it's interesting because Chris doesn't believe that it's the real Kirk Cuddy, so he hangs up on him because he thinks somebody's playing a prank on him. And then he kind of figures out that it actually really is him by asking him some ridiculous question that only a super Steel Dragon nerd would know, I guess. If that kind of call happened to you, wouldn't you just hang up too? I'd be like, whatever, dude. Yeah, of course. Haven't we talked to various musicians over the course of this podcast that said that they got a call from somebody or other and hung up? I'll tell you what it was. A couple of times where people that we talked to were auditioning for Ozzy got calls from Sharon Osbourne and hung up. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's been, a, there's been a couple of things like that. I guess unless you're expecting it, you're just kind of in a disbelief uh, factor and think somebody's messing with you. So let me rewind a minute, though. You're not even going to talk about the character that took Mark Wahlberg's place, the guy that can't sing that well. You're not even going to mention who that is or what his background is. What are you talking about? So the guy that replaced Mark Wahlberg's character in Blood Pollution is Stephen Jenkins, the singer from Third Eye Blonde. You know, we talked about that when I went through the cast. Yeah, but you didn't bring it up again. You didn't. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't talk too much about it in this in this transition. You mentioned it in passing. I mean, <laughs> the Third Eye Blind sucks. So why would I care? I, you don't like any of their music? Zero. I like, I like the hits. What hits? They had like four or five hits. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Nothing Sem I can name. Semi-Charm Kind of Life. That was a hit. Meh. Jumper. That was a hit. Uh, Made me want to jump after I listened to it, probably. Ah. <laughs> so before we get too far, I don't know. It came up a couple of times in the movie, but it was very important to Chris that people knew the difference between a tribute band and a cover band. And I guess there is a difference, right? Because I guess a cover band that does Kiss songs are just playing Kiss songs, but a tribute band's in makeup, right? Well, there's a huge difference in my opinion. And back in the 80s, really, and honestly, that as far as I can remember, there weren't a ton of tribute bands. The thing back in the 80s when I was growing up was cover bands. So you would play four sets a night in the rock club. And I saw tons and tons of bands that looked exactly like Blood Pollution, but they were playing Guns N' Roses and Rat and Motley Crue and Scorpions and Van Halen. They were playing cover songs, but a variety of cover songs from hard rock and metal bands in the 80s. And that was the thing back then. I don't recall ever seeing tribute bands back then. Nowadays, you don't really see a ton of cover bands. It's more about tribute bands. Now, you go to the rock club and you'll see anywhere from Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Poison, Pink Floyd, Foreigner, you name it, tons of tribute bands. That's like what sells nowadays. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like. And leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right, so they get to L.A., 
and they meet Tanya, who's just scary looking. We'll talk about her in a little bit. It's one thing to be rocker, sexy, freaky. It's a whole other thing to look scary. So she's a little interesting. But this is where the priest thing to me came in because I didn't know about the photocopy thing is when they're in Cuddy's house, they're talking about that jacket and hat that's on the mannequin, which is all leather and studded up. Like this is where you kind of start getting the, all right, maybe they are kind of loosely going after the priest thing. Were you thinking the same thing? Yeah. Plus the flying V's and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So living on a prayer plays by Bon Jovi. There's a bunch of songs that are basically more like soundtrack type songs given by other artists that were on other albums, but uh, they're walking through Cuddy's house, living on a prayer is playing. We all know that song, but then Chris is coming into the studio and Ralph Sands is walking out and he was also trying to sing long live rock and roll and he wasn't sounding great, right? No, that was horrible. He <laughs> he had to be sounding horrible on purpose because I know that guy sings pretty well. <laughs> and then we meet Matt, who's the road manager, and he's straight up sleazebag. And I remember I paused the movie and I wrote down a question. Steven, is this a good representation of who you were as the road manager or is this taking it too far? So that's a two-sided answer. No, it's not a good representation of who I was as a road manager, but yes, it's a good representation of some of the road managers that I've met over the years. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Absolutely. You bet your ass. And it's not just road managers. There are dirtbag roadies and techs and lighting techs and sound techs that are very much like that dude. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay, so I like the way the director kind of married up the way Chris left Blood Pollution and the way Bobby was leaving Steel Dragon. Like, it was very similar. So it kind of made the movie a little fun, very similar to the Queen movie where they were kind of putting in little fun things. So that was cool. No, that'd be you, Bobby. You think you can bring in some child to replace me, do you? You want to do your own thing. We're going to let you go. Tell me what you're doing here. You're firing me up. Calm down, Bobby. You calm down, you wanker. It's because I'm gay, isn't it? Okay. No. I got both my nipples pierced, bought a house in Morocco because I'm John fucking Wayne. Have you, have you ever listened to the lyrics of stand-up, hmm? Did you really think that Kim was a girl? Kim was a guy? Yeah, Kim was a guy. He also happens to be my lover, much to the horror of these closeted sausage jockeys. Oh, Bobby, as if we give a toss who you're buggering. <laughs> Whatever, Bob, just keep your dick away from me, though. Stop it, man, I tell you. No, what bothers us, Bobby, is you don't turn up for recording sessions. You missed half the gigs on the last tour. When you did show your attitude, I am still Dragon. Without me, you're nothing. Give us a break. You'll be playing for coppers in the tube without me. We'll see. We'll see. My scarf. Take it. Yeah, I will. Good. I leave now. I'm never coming back. Okay? Never. Heard you the first time, Bobby. What are you looking at? You think you can dress up like me and be a rock star? No, sir. No, sir. You have no idea what it takes. Hmm? What? You think it's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll, do you, huh? Well, you got the sex wrong, didn't you? Drugs, I never touch them. No one does a gig like I do a gig half cut. Not even at your age. And it's bed. 11.30 every night before a gig. That's what it takes. Why don't you just do your own thing? Get your own life. Chris meets everybody. And then he goes into the studio to sing We All Die Young. They're obviously floored, and they hire him as their new lead singer. They nickname him Izzy. And I thought it was cool that instead of portraying Chris Cole as a this macho super dude that goes in the studio, knocks it out of the park, he struggles a couple of times, and then he kind of knocks it out of the park. So I thought that made it a little more real. Your thoughts on the song We All Die Young? 
Yeah, first of all, that scene I would consider much more realistic, right? Because you just have to kind of think of the situation, right? If you're some dude, even if you're in a cover band and you're coming and you're literally auditioning for your favorite band, you're not going to be so damn cocksure that you're going to go in there and nail it. You're going to be a little bit nervous. So I think that was definitely much more realistic. Here's what I'll say about that song. No matter how many times I hear that song, for whatever reason, that song gives me goosebumps, chill bumps, chicken bumps, whatever the hell you want to call it. You know what I'm talking about. That song makes the hair on my arm stand up. It's the mood that it sets. It's the vocals. Uh, I don't know what it is, but that is uh, the feeling I get when I hear that song. And so much to the point to where my wife, who's not a big rock fan or big music fan in general, she even mentions it when that song comes on. Because, you know, I'll, I'll add that song to different playlists and stuff, and we'll listen to it in the car. And when that song happens to pop up, she'll mention that or she'll go, who's this again? You know, that type thing. Take me from my own The eyes of 
Yeah. So that song, We All Die Young, is a Steel Heart song. Millie wrote it with Ken Kanowski, his guitar player. And they wrote it 1996. And I guess you have to be a music nerd to actually know that. So I guess I'll give that one a pass. But it does not fit the timeline. But I'm with you. So after Chris gets hired, then they're at a photo shoot. It's amazingly funny that Chris cannot stop smiling. So they're trying to make it look all tough, blah, blah, but he's got a hard time not smiling. And then at the first show, you know, the road manager tells Izzy to break a leg and he almost basically breaks his neck. Perfect tie-in to the song Blood Pollution because when Izzy comes up to say, you want blood? I mean, just saying it right now gave me chills. I was watching the movie the other day. It gave me chills. Like, that's when I was all in on the movie. There is something about when he recovers from the fall and he yells, you want blood? That totally makes Blood Pollution an even better song than it is. What'd you think about that whole scene and all that? Going back to the photographer, who's the photographer at the photo shoot? Neil, right? Slows, as uh, Ryan Cook told us, is doing the photo shoot. Famous photographer, shoots all the West Coast bands. And that scene where he falls and what makes that scene so great, he gets up and he says, do you want blood, is because he's bleeding all over the place. So, yeah, it's a fantastic scene. I mean, it's a rough start for Izzy uh, in front of his uh, hometown crowd, right?
Have you ever got anybody hurt at a show, like one of your guys fell down and broke their leg or something? Uh, absolutely. The bass player for one of the bands I was working with at the time broke his leg on stage because we were playing this uh, uh, half-assed club with a shitty uh, stage, and he was uh, rocking a little bit too hard and went right through the stage. <laughs> wow. Okay. So the debut concert goes well. They're backstage after the show on the way to the after party and let's get rock plays by Def Leppard. 1992. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I forget about that. It's portraying the eighties, but it came out in 2001. So yeah, I got it. Um, so they're at the after party and you know, they're in a club. So if you remember clubs at that time, which I went to clubs later in the eighties and probably earlier in the nineties, but it was very normal not to hear hard rock and metal in the clubs. You know, you heard songs like Devil Inside by In Excess and Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, Stranglehold by Ted Nugent. You didn't hear that a lot at the clubs, but Tanya, that freak show, taking them to the dance floor, <laughs> man, was that a perfect feel for that song, right? I, Stranglehold was a good song placement. Got to give them that one. No? Yeah, that's a good song because uh, I think they're they're taking X on the dance floor, right? That's right. So you go into this whole like zoned out trans thing. Yeah, it, it worked real well in that scene. So the after party's nuts. This Tanya chick's crazy. And then you kind of see the aftermath, you know, the next morning, naked girls everywhere. Then Izzy walks up on Tanya peeing as she's standing up. <laughs> you don't know what Chris and Tanya and Emily did Oh, my God. I'm glad they didn't go too deep into that scene. I'm not sure I needed that scene. <laughs> uh, the other thing I thought that was weird during the whole movie is at times Chris has got an English accent and at times he doesn't. Is the problem that Izzy has to have an English accent when he's playing Izzy? Because I thought that was stupid. I agree. I didn't understand that part at all. Yeah, that was kind of stupid. I'm not sure why they put that in there. Wrote. I understand the part with Tanya being a transvestite because at one point in the movie, I think they referenced the fact that she was there with the old singer who was gay. So when he left, I guess she stayed on with the band in whatever role it is that she did. But I think that that's part of the connection. So I sort of understood why they wrote that part that way. Yeah, it makes sense. So then now the movie kind of transitions to Chris Cole or Izzy or whatever you want to call him. He's trying to come to grips with kind of the pressures of this newfound fame, right? Because what I always say is the fame and the success, it takes forever to get. But when it gets there, man, it goes fast. Like pro ball players feel this. Right. They're working as hard as they possibly can from age seven to age 19, 20. They're not, they made a cent in their life. They go to the NFL or the NBA or the Major League Baseball. And first year they make $10 million or $5 million or whatever the money is. And all of a sudden now they start struggling with what the hell do I do with all this money? People show up. There's all kinds of party and blah, blah, blah. Well, Emily, Jennifer Aniston is her own woman. So she didn't really want to deal with all this. So she decides to go back home and get off the road. I thought it was interesting that wives and girlfriends are not supposed to be on the tour bus and that they're in the car behind the tour bus. Does that sound normal? That didn't sound right. I have seen situations where musicians will travel with girlfriends and wives separately and follow buses. I've seen that before. 
I can't speak to all the wives in a limo together following the bus that I can't speak to at all. But, you know, when you're on the road and you're on the road for a really long time, you're in basically a bubble. Uh, And think about it this way. This is the 80s that we're talking about. So there's no Internet. There's no cell phones. You're in a bubble. Uh, And you're going from city to city to city. And if you're a big band that's doing well and you're surrounded by yes people and surrounded by a bunch of people that are waiting on you every inch of the day, it's a strange thing. And put yourself in the character's shoes. A month ago, he was working a copier job and playing in a tribute band. And a month later, he's got people interviewing him, girls throwing themselves at him, 10,000 people a night screaming his name. You know, drugs were rampant in the 80s. So any kind of drug you wanted, people telling you yes to everything. Put yourself in those shoes. You know what I'm saying? Damn, you got buckaroo right onto your peanuts. Repeat that in English. I don't speak dipshit. So Emily leaves and Izzy is, I guess, seeking advice. I'm not sure if he's seeking it or Bonham's giving it, but I can guarantee you Jason Bonham has never given advice ever that mattered to anybody in his whole life. But somehow in this movie, he got Izzy off his ass to enjoy what was about to come in the tour. And then, you know, they flash forward a bunch through the tour Zach shoots a Wichita sign, which totally sounds like Zach. Um, Furniture upside down in the room, TVs out the window, like all of those things that you see that is prototypical 80s metal, hard rock scene, crazy, stupid stuff. Wild Side plays during all this, which is great by Molly Crew. Rock Rock Till You Drop plays all this, like perfect songs for the scenes. I wanted to ask you, you didn't really go out with super big bands. Like, you can't destroy shit, right? Like, you're just throwing away dollars. This doesn't really happen that much, does it? Well, we know it does happen because, well, I read the Van Halen book. So, (laughs) yeah, I think back then it probably happened. There are numerous books written these days, whether it's by Motley Crue or Rat or uh, Van Halen, where you read that this did go on. So I'm sure it did. Now, for me personally, no, I wasn't out with any of these big bands, so I, I can't speak to it firsthand. But, yeah, it went on. Uh, there's yeah. documentation of it. And it cost them money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Major money, right? Yeah. So we go from the crazy road life. And when Emily had left the tour, she had made a deal with Chris that they would meet up in Seattle. And the tour finally gets to Seattle. And then there's this whole kind of love story, anguish, breakup thing that kind of happens. I don't want to totally ruin the movie for everybody. But basically... Emily goes to see Chris at the hotel and, you know, he's sleeping with other women, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of break up at that point. You ruined the movie for everybody when you said Tanya P standing up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What I wanted to talk about at this point is there's parts of this whole situation during these scenes where Emily's sarcastic personality is goddamn on point like she fires daggers at some of the girls that are kind of like the so-called groupies i absolutely love the sarcastic personality that she was portraying what did you think of jennifer aniston's part just overall i thought she did okay i thought she did great the sarcastic comments were awesome and that scene in the seattle hotel where they break up my heart broke for her because she gets this sort of raspy pouty voice 
and uh, you can see it in her eyes where she kind of knows because I take it Izzy or Chris Cole, the character was together with Jennifer Aniston since high school. I mean, they were girlfriend and boyfriend for a very long time. And so that kind of relationship for a long period of time, her heart's breaking at that point because she knows that she's got to let him go because of all this craziness. And that's just not her. She's kind of a hometown girl, girl next door type thing to a point anyway, all except for that whole nipple piercing thing. But, you know, uh, yeah, I thought she did an outstanding job. I got no issues with her performance at all in this flick. So then we flash forward to six months later, and this is normal in all kinds of rock bands. There's six months later, Izzy comes to a recording session with Steel Dragon. He's had a bunch of ideas. His creativity's flowing through him, and he's got some demo tapes he wants to share with the guys. And then he gets the explanation from Kirk that, dude, me and AC write all the songs. You, you, you don't write the songs here. And basically, he's just telling them, shut up and just sing the songs and do the Steel Dragon thing. And reality to me here, Izzy, you jumped into something, period. Like, you don't get to be you. This is why Jeff Scott Soto left Journey. This is why Terry's not in Great White anymore. And this is why they probably let Robert Mason write some of the stuff in Warrant. Otherwise, he'd bounce, right? So this is what it is, right? Like, you can't expect the band to let you write, right? Go watch the documentary Hired Gun. <laughs> it's, it's more rampant now than it probably was even back then. I mean, you know, where there are a lot of people changing bands back in the 80s, people kind of stayed in the bands for the most part uh, that I can remember anyway, uh, with the exception of a few here and there. But yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the band that you're joining. And I would expect that they spell it out when you join the band, look, we're going to look to you for creativity and to write, or we're going to look to you to shut up and sing the songs. You know, I think that's the difference in bringing in some kid off the street to join your band versus bringing in Sammy Hagar to join your band, right? Van Halen yeah. not going to tell Sammy Hagar, shut up and sing the songs, right? Yeah, right. So then now Izzy's pouting, obviously, and he's got to sing one of these songs, and he starts rapping. And I wonder if that's because it's Marky Mark. Like, would Brad Pitt have rapped part of the song? I just don't think so. And he's not even rapping the right lyrics. He just kind of made these weird childish lyrics. It's just so childish what he did, but I guess they're musicians, so Look, whatever. All I remember is that some of the lyrics were, I got all my bitches and hoes. And to me, those are brilliant <laughs> lyrics. So you can say whatever you want, but that was a hit in the making. Is, do you want to just sing it like it's written, all right? I thought I was. Well, you weren't. All right, sorry. Great. Theo, let's just do it from the top. So I don't know if you've ever heard this song, Reckless, by Kane Roberts, Michael Slamer, Jimmy Travis. Kane Roberts had a band called Phoenix Down, and he wrote this song called Reckless that he actually sings on. What do you think about the song? Was that the first time you had heard the full song? 
when I saw the movie, I didn't know that that was a Kane Roberts song. Later, I saw that song or somebody told me that song was a Kane Roberts song. And I went and I seeked it out and it's on his record, right? Right. Yeah. So I went and uh, listened to that record on Spotify or something, probably, I don't know, two years ago or whenever it was. And that's the first time I heard the entire song. So I knew that just from research and being around people. But I don't dislike it. I don't love it. I don't dislike it. It's just kind of middle of the road, maybe a little right of myth. A little right of myth. (laughs) That's good. Not quite myth. Runaway train right through your door Head so cause I'm tossed 
after the recording session, obviously, Izzy's kind of down on himself. And then here comes this sleazy road manager that ends up being the pseudo mentor. So I'm assuming that being the road manager, you end up being part mentor, part babysitter, part referee, part dad. Is that honest? 100%. 150%. Yes. The band comes to you. Different points of the tour. Various members. If two of the people in the band are fighting with each other, they'll both come to you separately. Because you're the bartender of the band, meaning that everybody kind of shares their thoughts. Somebody's homesick, they come to you. Somebody is not getting along with somebody in the band, they come to you. Yes, that's 150% accurate. So then the movie kind of fast forwards to the next tour and you kind of see this situation where Izzy ain't really into it. He's going through the motions. He may even be tired on stage. And as he's singing a song, he hears a fan in the crowd singing it along with him, very similar to how he was doing with Bobby Beers at the beginning of the movie. And he brings up this fan who happens to be Miles Kennedy and they start singing the song together. And then during the guitar solo, they go off backstage and Miles Kennedy introduces himself as Thor, God of Thunder, right? That, that was <laughs> so cool. That's good. And uh, yeah. And then uh, basically Izzy hands a microphone to him and walks out. I would say this part, they took some liberties here because there's no fucking way this has ever happened to where you're going to hand a microphone to some fan to go finish off the show. I thought that scene was taken a little bit too far. What'd you think? Yeah, but it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they took it so far because it was cool. But for a music nerd, I'm like, that's not reality. What the fuck? No, they definitely, there's been situations where people bring other people on stage to do a song or uh, they'll even walk off stage for a break or something uh, if that person is doing really well. But I've never seen or heard of anything where somebody comes on stage out of the crowd and finishes off the show. That's a little bit much. <laughs> that and I think there's probably also some contractual issues that that would cause. Yeah, you would think so, right? So then the movie is kind of coming to a close. Chris Cole has become himself again. He's not easy anymore. They fast forward to Seattle. He's dumped the rock star image. The movie almost feels like singles at this point because now it's starting to feel like the beginning of grunge and alt music and coffee house and that kind of stuff. And, you know, he's kind of in this bar and Emily walks in. It kind of turns into this love story as Chris Cole is singing colorful on stage, which is technically uh, Brian Vanderark singing the song. He's got his hair cut. It's very early 90s. So did you feel like they were kind of starting to play up a little bit of the 90s vibe at this point? I never thought about it until you just mentioned that, but you're spot on. And that's really cool. I actually appreciate that even more uh, now that you mentioned that. But I just kind of appreciated it that it's back to the roots. It's okay. I'm not doing the rock star thing anymore. Now it's about the music and the song. And that's what I want to focus on my own personal music and that's just no glitz no glamour here is the song the way it's meant to be heard and that's how i approached it show is over close the storybook there will be no one 
all the random hands that I have shook Well, they're reaching for the door I watch the backs as they leave single file You stood stubborn, cheering all the while I know I can be I know I can be great But I know this loser's living fortunate Cause I know you will love me Drama, though. 
And then, of course, the movie ends with they reconcile, there's a kiss, and they're going to be back together. And then one of my favorite things in any movie is having some outtakes put in. And I thought Hangover did it well. A lot of the Marvel movies sometimes do it, or they put something at the end. And there's some outtakes that kind of ended up on the cutting room floor or things that they were actually planning to do as outtakes uh, at the end of the movie, which is awesome. And there's one specifically where there's a scene they're about to film and the folks start playing Marky Mark's Good Vibrations. Did you notice Pilsen's dance moves? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I saw this. Did you think that was a little weird? Uh, um, I don't know. We'll have to have him on the show and ask him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it looked pretty off the cuff. That didn't look like it was like planned to be the dance move he wanted to do. It just looked like a bunch of goofballs goofing off. <laughs> it was pretty funny, though. But in the end, it is a love story. And, you know, I kind of ruined it for everybody by saying I love the movie. Do you like this movie? Have you sought this movie out several times? Or is this just one of those movies that eh, if it comes on, I think about it, I'll put it on. I liked it when I saw it. I went and bought the DVD. I haven't watched it on DVD until the other night when I knew we were doing this episode. But every once in a while, I'll catch it on cable and it draws me in because I like it. Listen, there is a lot of valid, reasonable things in this movie. Uh, there's also some stuff that's silly, and we talked about that. But overall, I think this movie is a good, fun thing. If you're looking at it seriously and try and compare it to the story of Judas Priest and Tim Ripper Owens, then that's just dumb. And you shouldn't do that. If you're looking for a movie just to entertain you with good music and to transport you back to that period of time in your life, if you're my age, then it's spot on. So before we get to the connection to Judas Priest, first thing I want to say to folks is the original Steel Dragon songs are actually produced by Tom Worman. They sound really good. There's some other songs that are in the movie, Karma Chameleon, uh, California Girls, Once in a Lifetime. There's a Batman theme, a song called Rockstar by Everclear. So there's some other songs in the movie also that we didn't really talk about, but it is overall a great movie and a great soundtrack. And the worldwide gross of this movie was $19 million. And it cost $57 million to make. So it was literally the dictionary definition of box office bomb. It has a good cast. We kind of talk about, does it do any better if it's not around 9-11? Maybe, maybe not. They are kind of going after a pretty small audience. But let's kind of talk about whether the movie's about Judas Priest or not. So here's what Ian Hill said. And that's the Judas Priest bassist. Because he was asked about his reaction. And he said, it's a true work of fiction. When Judas Priest heard about the production company that they were going to make a movie based on it, as far as they knew, they wanted to talk about Ripper. And they offered their help. Judas Priest did. They said, hey, you want to know anything? Come talk to us. And then it was silence. They went off on their own tangent. And Hill said, you know, I enjoyed the movie. It was entertaining. But it had nothing to do with Rob Halford, Ripper Owens, or Judas Priest. It's got nothing to do with us whatsoever. It's complete fiction. And it's about a story about local boy makes good. And that's about it. He watched it once and he never had the urge to watch it again. I don't think it's about Judas Priest either. I think it was the basis of a movie that they thought about and they put some pepper things in it. But you can't really say it's about Priest, right? I don't think so. 
I think maybe, like you said, they purchased the rights to the story based on the story, but that was where it ended. They decided, hey, Judas Priest only talks to a small demographic. We're not going to make any extra money by putting their name on it. And, you know, maybe they wanted some money to consult and they figured we don't need their consulting if this movie's not even going to be about them. Uh, this is going to be a love story based around, like Ian Hill said, hometown boy makes good. So, no, I don't think it's about Judas Priest uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not even sure it was ever going to be about Priest. You wanted the best, but you got the best! The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your Historic Moment on Growing Up Rock. For the historic moment, we're going to go with a song that's played in the movie. So after Steel Dragon introduces the world to Izzy, because for some reason, Kirk wants him to say he eats a lot of pussy and that's how he keeps his voice fresh, whatever. (laughs) But I didn't want to play the actual Kiss song because I am honestly sick of this damn song. So I'm going to play a cover of the song. Uh, Here's the musicians that are involved. Tim Steinrook, he's from The Mighty One. Russell Bergquist, which is from the Russell Bergquist Project, Touch the Sun and Dust Machine. Rob Wade of Touch the Sun and Flybanger. And Chris Seegers is on drums from Space Cabin Audio. They are calling themselves Hashtag Metal Cam Jam. Here is Lick It Up.
I'm hashtag Stephen Michael Jam Bam. <laughs> <laughs> You're hashtag hard to deal with, period. <laughs> That's what you texted my wife after you told her happy birthday. That's right. Why I said, we- <laughs> happy birthday, Jen. I can't believe you are still with that ass. What's up with that? That's a horrible thing to say about your partner. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you think about that cover song? I thought it was pretty good. I I thought the music was all right. I mean, I miss uh, Paul Stanley's voice in it, but I'm like you. I'm burned on that song. So, but yeah, musically, I mean, it was pretty good. A little bit faster, it seems like maybe. Yeah. So before we kind of get our final thoughts, there is one other song and we're going to play it during the shuffle song. And it's a song called Crown of Falsehood, and it's written by Zach Wilde, and Jeff Scott Soto is doing the vocal. I could not find where this song is in the movie. So either it ended up on the cutting room floor, or my ADD cuts in every time this song goes on. It must be on for like 10 seconds. Maybe I miss it every time. Did you hear this song in the movie at all? Uh, That's a big no. So if somebody's watching the movie and you hear the shuffle song in the movie, can you send me the timestamp on that so I I figure out where I'm missing it? Because... It's a great song, and it's listed in the credits, so we know the song exists. I just don't know if we made the final cut. So, Sonny won't be able to sleep at night until you uh, find that, by the way. Because I like the song. That's all right. Yeah. Oh, good Lord. No, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the song. I got other bones to pick with you before that. We'll get into that in the closeout. Oh, well, let's close out. What what bones you got to pick with me? Go ahead. Why would you say that Jason Bonham's never given anybody any (laughs) advice? Why would you say that about poor Jason? Because he's Jason Bonham. You don't think he's an older, uh, wiser rock star now? You don't even got to finish that statement. That's a fuck no. He's been around the block a few times. He grew up in the shadows of his dad. I would rather take advice from Zach Wilde, to be honest with you. (laughs) Man, do you like that verb pipe song, Colorful? I liked it. I think it's cool. I like that song a lot. I like the melody in it. I just think it's a good melody. Yeah, I think it was cool that they had musicians in the movie. I think it's cool that some of those musicians wrote some of the songs in the movie. I think it's really cool they got a Sammy Hagar song in there. Like it's there's little bits and pieces that makes this movie a little more believable if you're into this kind of music. Yeah, there were a lot of believable parts. Speaking for somebody that's seen some of that stuff, definitely. There was also some stupid parts. The fight in the parking lot. I hated that. <laughs> you mentioned it briefly, but I never really commented on it. That was really stupid. <laughs> Not that it never happens, I'm, I guess, but I can't ever say that it's happened, and it was just kind of stupid. And it, <laughs> and it looked dumb, too. It looked like, because the camera pans out, so the camera gets further and further away, and the more that you, if you look closely, it, it looks stupid. It looks like a slap fight. Yeah, between the actual tribute members, right? Yeah. So like the guitar player gets a guitar player, yes. the drummer gets a drummer, yes. they're fighting, don't touch my cape, don't touch my cape. Like it's, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. It was probably meant to be sort of funny and stupid. If you look at this director's background, he's done some comedies and stuff, right? Bill and Ted's Adventure and uh, yeah. Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead, that type stuff. He's done some great musical movies too, though. He did uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. That was a damn good movie. Yeah, that was pretty serious movie, though, and I'm glad he didn't make this super serious. Correct. I agree. I like it that's not as raunchy as The Dirt, and I like it that it's not as serious as Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah, I agree with all that. Nice little episode there, sir. Yeah, it was fun to to watch that movie again and catch up since we've never done anything uh, on that flick. But yeah, overall, that's a good rock and roll movie to watch. Want to tell everybody, thank you for listening. Go watch the movie. Think you'll enjoy it. 
let us know what you think about the music. Yeah, I appreciate each and every one of you guys listening in to us each week. We love your feedback. We appreciate you guys just uh, sharing your thoughts with us on the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. So come on over there, join, shoot the shit with us. And uh, hopefully we're giving you guys an hour, an hour and a half entertainment each and every week. So thank you. We will talk to you soon. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.